Good morning. So I want to um, <clears throat> let you know at the beginning, my voice is a little shaky this morning. Um, so if it starts to go, um, there's not much we can do. You have to just deal with it. But I'm just letting you know it could happen. I just, you know, it's just kind of preparation. Um, I am coaching. The reason for the voice, I'm coaching upper basketball here. Uh, had our first game yesterday. I'm coaching Miriam, my oldest daughter's uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade girls basketball team, which is a lot of fun. And uh, we had our first game yesterday. We're the Badgers, which the girls decided was not a um, tough enough name. So we voted, and we're now the Ninja Badgers, which is <laughs> which is good. And um, uh, and we had our first game yesterday. So I'm coaching our, our first game, and um, we did not win. We did not come close to winning. But our loss did not diminish my enthusiasm as the coach to shout from the sidelines. At about halftime, Beth was like, you might want to just tone it down a little bit. Uh, but, you know, the Holy Spirit was leading me, and so we just kind of, kind of kept going. And uh, anyway, it's a little little shaky today. So when I'm preaching four times on a Sunday, might have to start learning to tone it down a bit with the Ninja Badgers on Saturday afternoon. But these are the ways that Jesus teaches us to grow. So if it starts to go, it's Ninja Badger. Uh, we'll just call it Ninja Badger voice. I've got Ninja Badger voice today. So uh, it might happen again over the next, I think, six more weeks that we have games. Anyway, that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but it's just an interesting little fact about my voice. Uh, what we are going to be talking about today is history. I want to bring a, a photo slide up here uh, of this guy. Um, I love history. I have always loved history. And part of what I love about history is, and I'm not a historian. Some of you are probably historians and, and you know more than me, but um, a lot of you know more than me. But this is, uh, but I love history. One of the reasons I love it is because history allows us to remember how we've come to the place we are today, right? It's easy to think, oh, I was just born in the world, and, you know, and I, you know, everybody's got a smartphone, and I just need a smartphone, and, you know, and the kind of like circumstances of life, right? But what you realize with history is that none of us created the circumstances in which we find ourselves today. We've said this before, there's no such thing as a self-made person. History determines so much about our lives, of where we're born, of the circumstances we're born into. Uh, it shapes and molds us in all different ways. And I love the stories of people and how they lived and how their decisions changed the world in which we find ourselves today. The decisions of ordinary people, the lives of ordinary people that changed the world a little bit uh, and, and made it more how you and I find it. And one individual is this guy, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, at the beginning of the Civil War in the United States, was, uh, was a professor of speech and rhetoric from Bowdoin College in Maine. That's what he was doing. He was teaching speech and rhetoric at Bowdoin College, uh, which is a small liberal arts college still there in Maine. And, um, and he volunteered to be a soldier in the Union Army in 1862. Now, what's interesting about that is the Civil War began in 1861, and when the Civil War began, there were all these people, both in the North and in the South, who immediately, in like the fanfare of the war, all volunteered and signed up to go fight. But when Chamberlain volunteered, the war was more than a year old, and in that year, the North had lost almost every single battle. 
that was not going well. The North had to institute the draft. That's where the, the draft um, came into being because they had to force people to go and fight. They took immigrants literally off the boat and handed them a musket. And it's like, you have to go fight for your country now. So one of the, de- the deals with the North is that even though when you look at any Civil War battle, they almost always had more troops than the South, many of those troops did not want to be there. And that changes the way you fight, okay? Chamberlain volunteered in 1862, a year into the war effort when the war was going terribly bad. And he volunteered as part of the 20th Regiment of Maine. Now, the 20th Regiment of Maine was all volunteers. They volunteered, and many of them were Christians. Chamberlain was a Christian. He believed in the abolition of slavery. He believed in the emancipation and freedom. He also believed in the Republic and what they were fighting for. In the year between 1862 and 1863, the 20th of Maine went from over 1,200 troops to 361. All the others were killed or were captured or were injured and were no longer able to fight. Huge losses. Chamberlain, when he volunteered, was not in charge of the regiment. But in the summer of 1863, he had become a colonel and was now in charge of the 20th Maine Regiment. Had he been to West Point? Did he have any training? No professor of speech and rhetoric at Bowdoin College, now in charge of the 20th Maine. That happened in 1863. The other thing that happened in 1863 that is significant is the South, even though they had spent now two years winning almost every major battle, changed how they fought the Civil War. The reason for that is in the first two years of the Civil War, 1861 and 1862, the war kind of followed this pattern. The North would invade into the South to try to defeat the South, take Richmond, the capital, and force them to come back into the Union. So the South was in a defensive posture. Robert E. Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia would find different ways when the North would come in to fight them off in these battles, and the North would almost always lose, and then the North would retreat back the Army of the Potomac would retreat back to Washington, D.C., regather themselves, come up with a new plan, and then they'd go try again. And they would lose again, but they'd go back and they'd draft some more soldiers and they'd come up with it again. And after two years of winning, Robert E. Lee in the South realized that sooner or later they were going to get worn down by this. And so to try and win the war, Robert E. Lee came up with a plan in early 1863, which is to move from being defensive to being the aggressor. And the North, in a, I mean, in the South, in a very surprising move, began an invasion of the North. They traveled from Virginia up into Pennsylvania, traveled north of Washington, D.C., and their aim was to capture Washington, D.C. And if they could capture Washington, D.C., where the president and the Congress, the war would be over. It would be finished. The North was stunned that this happened. They were taken totally off guard. And so the Southern army, in this weird twist of, twist of fate, goes north into Pennsylvania, and then starts attacking Washington, D.C. from the north. So you have the Southerners who have been the defenders now attacking and being the aggressor, and they're attacking, the Southerners are attacking from the north, and the Northerners are defending Washington, D.C. from the south. And say these two armies meet in Pennsylvania in a town called Gettysburg. And it's at Gettysburg over four days that literally the, the Civil War was decided. The North knew that if they lost this battle, the war was over. It was, it was finished. It was done. And our, your country and mine would be a, a, a radically different place. The institution of slavery would have survived. And so what happened is there's this big battle, and everyone knows what's at stake, and these two huge armies in Gettysburg come together. Now, the North had about 90,000 troops 
at Gettysburg, and the South had just over 60,000 troops. You have enormous numbers of soldiers fighting, and they would spread out on this long line that could be as big as six miles long, so just six miles of soldiers, 90,000 soldiers spread out, and then these two sides would just come together and start fighting, okay? Now, Robert E. Lee had won a lot of battles before Gettysburg, and he won it, and I promise you all this has a point. Robert E. Lee, um, he, it might have a point. It could. If not, it's just interesting. But uh, he, he would attack the Union in the same way in fights, and what he would do is he would try to confuse the Union, and so he would attack the Union troops at different points at different times and then back up and then attack here and then back up and attack here, confusing the Union as to what they do. And they'd send reinforcements over here and then they'd run and send reinforcements. And by the time they were really confused, he would then hold a number of soldiers in reserve to do his real attack. And his real attack would almost always happen on the flank of the Union Army. Now the flank is the end position, the last position. And so you have a line of 90,000 troops, but even though it's like five miles long, there's some regiment that's the last one. That's your flank, okay? And the reason that was so important is if you imagine being a soldier and you're fighting people who are in front of you, and that's scary enough, right? And, and cannonballs and everything else, that's hard enough. If your flank get, gets captured, the enemy then comes down at your side, and not only are they in front of you, but they surprise you by attacking you from the side as well. And when that happens, it's a rout. So the flank is an incredibly important position. And at the Battle of Gettysburg on the first day, who had the left flank, the 20th Regiment of Maine, commanded by a professor of speech and rhetoric, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. As Robert E. Lee's soldiers began their true attack on this position, Chamberlain was informed he would have no reinforcements. And they said, you cannot lose this ground. He was on a ground called Little Round Top. And we've got a map here that we're going to bring up. See how in the blue curved line is 20 ME. That's the 20th Maine. That's the end of the Union Army. It extends north miles from here. This is just a, a, a close-up of the very end. And you see how the 20th Maine is the only one bent at a right angle. That's because they're protecting the side as well as the front. They are the flank. They're the end. And Chamberlain was told, you cannot lose this ground. You cannot surrender. And there are no reinforcements. This ground must be held by you. And the war depends on you holding this ground. Oh, great professor of speech and rhetoric. So the southerners start coming up this hill, little round top. They start attacking the 20th Maine. And the 20th Maine fights them off. And they grow, and the southerners regroup at the bottom and they attack up again. And the 20th Maine fights them off again. The southerners regroup at the bottom and they attack up again. And they get closer. And each time they're getting closer. As the day wore on, the 20th Maine, which was already down to 361 troops, lost almost 40% of their remaining soldiers in the battle. But they kept repelling the southern forces down, knowing what stakes lay. Chamberlain himself was, was injured and shot in his foot, but he kept staying out there and commanding. And at one point in the battle, he realized that as they repelled the Southerners back down one time late in the afternoon, he went around to assess his men and realized they had no more ammunition. They were out of bullets. And the Southerners were grouping at the bottom to come up and attack again, and they could not hold the ground. They couldn't do it. They had nothing left to defend with. As the Southerners started coming up the hill, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain shouted out to his men, men, fix bayonets. Soldiers fixed their bayonets at the end of their guns. 
And Chamberlain then yelled, charge. And the 20th Maine stood up and charged into the Southerners who had ammunition with no bullets in their guns, with bayonets and swords drawn. Now, the Southerners who had been attacking up were exhausted, but they were also from years of fighting used to Union soldiers who were just kind of ready to give up when it became too hard. And they were so shocked and so stunned at this blue wave coming down the hill at them that many of them turned and ran, and many others dropped their weapons and surrendered. What turned from a charge turned into a mass surrender. There was almost no fighting as the 20th Maine swooped down the hill in a completely unexpected move. Chamberlain's men captured more prisoners that day than they had still left in their own regiment, and they had no bullets in their guns with which to guard the prisoners they captured. The courage and the decision of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain saved that battle save that war, and our country is a better place today because of the life and courage of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, a professor of speech and rhetoric at Bowdoin College who led one of the most courageous charges in history. Why am I telling you this? Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain was asked many times, he became a national hero, about this charge at Gettysburg on Little Round Top, and we can, we can take the map down. And when asked about it, Chamberlain would say, and he was a professor of speech and rhetoric, and at the time that meant you could give three-hour speeches. It makes me sound concise. And so it's hard to find a quote that's not eight paragraphs long that says this, but essentially what he says is, in your moment of trial, you don't become different from that which you trained to be. I'm going to say that again because it's this line. I don't want you to remember, oh, there was like the Civil War sermon. This line is why I want you to remember this. In your moment of trial, he said, you do not become different from that which you have trained to be. Chamberlain's point was that what happened at Gettysburg was actually not different, that the 20th Maine had been fighting because they believed in this cause, they had trained because they wanted to make a difference, and they had fought this way, and even in losses that the Union had experienced. They were the right people to have on that flank because they knew why they were there. He said, we didn't, you don't magically become different, right? Many of us think that. It's like, oh, well, uh, you know, when times get really hard, I'm going you know, to really respond with courage and discipline and everything else. It's just right now I'm not doing it. He's like, that's a lie. It's a lie. You won't become different from that which you've trained to be. Think about it in terms of athletics, right? Think about it in terms of athletics. If, if you had a good friend of yours who was going to go swim and, and bike and race in an Ironman triathlon, that's one of the most grueling races around, and you're like, wow, that's really impressive. How are you going to go, like, how are you training for that? And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm not training. And you're like, what are you talking about? Oh, no, I just think when I get there in the atmosphere of the race, my adrenaline's going to be going. I'm just going to kind of rise the occasion and do it. And you're like, no, you won't. You're going to sink. It's going to be really, really bad. You, you're not going to magically on that day become different than what you are. You're going to be what you train to be. Or think about it, we've got a, a national championship college football game tomorrow night. Alabama and Clemson are playing. You can imagine the fans of one of those schools if somebody uh, heard the, from the coach saying, you know, how's practice going this week? And the coach was like, yeah, we're not practicing. 
It's like, what do you mean you're not practicing? It's the national championship game. Like, oh, you know, we think with the environment and the hype, we're just going to kind of play really well and rise to the occasion. It's like, no, no, you won't. You will fail. You're not going to magically become different. You are going to be what you trained to be. Friends, listen to me. We are moving into a new year. This year is going to have wonderful things happen. It's going to have wonderful things happen in your life. It's going to have wonderful things happen in the life of this community. It's going to have wonderful things happen in this world. We are going to celebrate things. We are going to experience joy. You are going to see opportunities open up. It is going to be in many ways a wonderful, wonderful year to come. But let me also promise you something else. This year will bring pain. This year will bring tragedy. This year will bring difficulty and struggle and confusion to you, to your family, to our community here, and to this world. It will happen. And most of it right now sitting here, you and I have no idea what it is. When our trial comes, we will not magically become better than what we are today. We will not magically respond differently than how we train ourselves today to walk through life with Jesus. My good friend and mentor, Steve Hayner, who died of pancreatic cancer, was very, very healthy. There's no sign of illness for him. And when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, found out in the span of 48 hours that he was sick and was going to die and there was nothing they could do. He wrote and said, I realize I have been training my whole life for this diagnosis. Is God trustworthy? Can I trust God when life takes my breath away with its pain? And he said, thank goodness I didn't start asking that question after I was diagnosed. I've been training my whole life to walk with joy in the midst of sorrow because I know the faithfulness of God that will accompany me every step of my journey. You won't become something different in your time of trial than that which you have trained to be today. And so no matter what this year brings, no matter what it brings, how you respond to what life brings you tomorrow begins with the decisions you make today. How are you spending your time? How are you disciplining yourselves? How are you training yourselves? How are you learning in different ways about the love and faithfulness of God that will be with you always? Thankfully, thankfully, we're not the first people in history to ask that question. I want to use a scripture passage today and invite you to look and read a scripture passage with me that we have looked at before. And we're going to purposefully look at it again. And we're going to look at it again in the future. Because it's the story of the first church in history. And it's about how they formed themselves to be shaped by God for whatever life would throw at them. It's from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And it says this. They, the first Christians, they didn't start by filing articles of incorporation. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This first church in history, this first church understood itself as being shaped and brought together by four common practices. Four things that they said, we devote ourselves to doing this. And as we devote ourselves and shape our calendars and shape our schedules in this way, God is going to change and mold us to be ready through the Holy Spirit to, to encounter whatever life throws our way. It says that first they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the stories of Jesus. We would say it's devoting yourselves to Scripture. Second, they devoted themselves to intimate fellowship. It says they were in each other's homes. They broke bread together. They had meals together. Third, they devoted themselves, as you see, to prayer. And fourth, they devoted themselves to how they handled their finances, their stuff, that they gave whatever they had wherever they saw need. Fourth, they were extravagantly generous. It's these four practices that this church said this is what gives us direction. These basic building blocks are how we are formed, and they built their calendars around it. Most of us live lives where we kind of live in chaos just trying to keep up with crazy schedules. I promise you, you're no more busy than these folks were. We are not meant to live reactive lives where we're just trying to keep up. One of the most important parts of a Christian is living in a disciplined way where we say, this is what's important, and I align my calendar and my time to live in alignment with what I say is most important. We're proactive as much as possible in shaping our calendars, not reactive to the chaos of life. So I want to just invite you to consider each of these four areas and real quickly go through them of how you can spend your new year preparing for what this year will be for you to devote yourselves in these ways. How are you growing in each of these ways? Not how's the person next to you, not how's your small group leader, not, how's, not you know, how your spouse is. How are you doing in this? First, they devoted themselves to Scripture. Why is this important? I mean, we know we're in church, and we study the Bible, and that's what we're supposed to do, and church has got to have Bible studies because that's what churches do. We don't devote ourselves to Scripture so that we um, check a box of religious duty we devote ourselves to Scripture because in Scripture we are reminded of God's narrative for our life. You see, you and I live in a culture that has a very real narrative. It's a narrative of what's important. It says you got to have a career, you got to be successful, you got to take these vacations, you got to post these pics of your family and a white picket fence and golden retrievers and make everybody. There's a way of kind of achieving the successful life. And so we work and strive and achieve and sacrifice in order to have this, this life where we eventually are going to look around and go, man, I got the great job and the right family and we're in the right schools and everything's great and I've kind of made it, right? I've kind of made it. That's the narrative that so much of our world lives under. And it is a narrative that if it is what you are looking for to give you meaning or purpose or to fill a void inside of you, you will struggle and pursue it your whole life and never find what you're looking for. The narrative of Scripture reminds us of what God's narrative is for our life. And God's narrative for you today is that you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove to God. There is nothing you can achieve. There is nothing that you can attain. There is nothing that your resume can look at where God's going to look down and go, wow, you've really done well. Congratulations. It's not going to happen. God's saying, I love you completely, exactly as you are. You have ultimate value. 
in God's eyes now, just as you are. And the life we are called to live is to immerse ourselves in that narrative. Because when we don't immerse ourselves in the narrative of Scripture, we're going to run back to the achievement, I've got to prove something to somebody narrative. Rather than living in the, I am loved by my Creator, and so I just live in freedom. I live in the freedom of what God wants me to do today. I live in the freedom of the purpose that, that God has me. I don't need to achieve anything to prove anything to anybody, starting with myself. That's one of the main reasons why Scripture is important. God loves us and perfects that love in Jesus for all of us. And so we have opportunities for you to grow in that through, through lamplighters, through Presbyterian women, through Men in the Word, through the downtown men's Bible study. There's all different kinds of ways for you to shape your calendar to be a part of these kinds of conversations where we're immersing ourselves in the narrative of Scripture. Secondly, intimate fellowship, what we have called here life together. How are you in a big church like Covenant? How are you finding ways to become a part of sharing your life in smaller community, whether it's Sunday school or, 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 or prayer groups or, or anything else? We are not meant to be spiritual lone rangers. For so many people who say, well, I don't know where God is, or I don't feel close to God right now, that's not something you're meant to just figure out by yourself. Jesus says, if you want to know where I am, where two or three are gathered in my name, that's where I am. You want to experience God, the quickest place you need to go sometimes is to intimate community. Who knows how to walk with you? Who knows how to pray for you? Who knows that what's really going on in your heart and that you trust? Sociologists tell us that we are in a time today where we are more urbanized than any point in human history and we're lonelier than any point because we are known on the surface. I can put something on Facebook and give 100, get 100 likes. Who cares? Who cares? It means nothing. And yet it makes us feel good in a moment so that we have a kind of a sense of meaning. The narrative of Scripture says that we are called to share our lives intimately with a few people. And so, as you saw a video, we're starting covenant groups that are starting up. A short-term opportunity for you to have an opportunity to, to get in community with people. If it doesn't work, you can hit the eject button six weeks in at, at the end of Lent. We're kind of designing it this way so you can try it out. But you've got to make the decision to give it a try and open your life up to somebody else in community. Third, we're devoted to prayer. And prayer is not like listing our prayer requests to God and going, I need this and I need this, and my friends need this, and my kids need this, and can, can you do this as well? That's one part of prayer. But a healthy prayer life is learning to listen to God, learning to discern what God's leading me to do and how do I respond and how do I follow. So we're going to have different ways for you to pray in community. We're going to have the sanctuary open on Wednesday nights during Lent for people just to go in there and pray and learn to pray and learn to, to hear God's voice. It's an essential part of what we're about. And lastly, that we're called to be extravagantly generous. You know, as I said yesterday, I was coaching the Ninja Badgers and in, in upward basketball. It was an amazing thing because there are all these families up there. Almost, you know, none of them are covenant people. I mean, very few of them are covenant people. It's a lot of people from our community whom we're serving through this upward basketball league. But what was awesome was seeing the covenant people there. People who, not only who had families involved, not only who were coaching, but who were refereeing and who were running the concession stand, giving of their time. And you might sit there and go, well, I'm too busy for that. Well, these people are busy too, but they're shaping their time. And you know what? In the midst of busy lives where they're giving of their time, I didn't hear any of them go, you know, at the end of it, I just wish I hadn't done that. I wish I'd just kind of done my own thing today. Because when we give and we're extravagantly generous, God brings meaning and purpose in our lives. We have to shape ourselves to serve something bigger than ourselves. It's the same with our finances, which is a part of giving. 
When we tithe and when we give, I've never heard anybody who, who took the discipline of giving and who sacrificed to give financially and saw the kingdom of God open up in someone's life who looked at it and goes, I just wish I hadn't done that. I wish I'd just bought new, more new stuff for myself. Nobody does that because nobody has that feeling when you give. When we give of our time, when we get involved in life uh, of serving other people, when we give extravagantly generously of our finances and what God's given to us, we see the kingdom of God come alive. We're a part of something that's bigger than just our own stories, and it's the most wonderful thing to be a part of that. Friends, this year will bring all kinds of joy It will bring all kinds of excitement. It will bring all kinds of opportunity, but it will bring difficulty and pain and hardship and tragedy. And how you respond tomorrow will be largely dependent on the decisions you make today of how you are preparing yourself and learning about the love of God and living in community so that no matter what it is that life throws at us, we know with whom we will face it. And that makes all the difference in the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We'll sing one more quick song before we go. Lord, we ask that you would meet us here today and that you would help us to know how to shape our calendars and our lives, how to shape and discipline ourselves with our time so that we're growing in Scripture and community and relationships and prayer and that we are giving generously. Help us this week to reflect on each of these things and how we can discipline ourselves to move towards you so that we are ready to receive with expectation and joy all that this year will bring. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.